Tonight I want to give a word of personal testimony. And tomorrow morning, the Lord willing, I'm going to talk about why. And if you have an unanswered why in your life, I won't have the answer, but we'll talk about one who not only has, but is the answer to all our whys. I'm sure that many of you have stood in that historic old church in Richmond where long ago uh, Patrick Henry fired that verbal shot that was heard around the world, March 20, 1775. It was a rare moment in time when centuries were crowded into hours. One man who heard that speech made a request that when he died he might be buried on that spot, and his request was granted. Patrick Henry cut a knot that some cautious souls were trying to untie. There come times in history and times in our lives when we try to untie knots that we ought to cut. Time has come for definite and sometimes drastic action. The olive branch men, they were called, of Patrick Henry's time were trying to work out a policy of peaceful coexistence, although that term hadn't been heard of as yet, but he was fed up with finagling, and this red-headed Virginian saw no sense in further negotiations. And in that immortal speech, he said, I know not what others may do, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. The die was cast, and the Rubicon was crossed, and all bridges were burned, and retreat was impossible. There wasn't any uncertainty about where he stood. He cleared the air and stated the issue. There are no third dimensions, no middle ground. A speech like that's awfully out of date today in this fuzzy time of woolly thinking when we have so many experts in double talk who uh, have specialized in the art of almost saying something. I heard of a lady who said to her congressman, I sure do like your straightforward way of dodging the issue. Nobody coached Patrick Henry on how to uh, smudge black and white into indefinite gray. His yea was yea and his nay was nay. And while his contemporaries were going around their elbows to get to their thumbs, he decided that a short line is a a uh, straight line was the shortest distance between two points, and he thought it was time to travel it. That speech of his must have shocked the school of caution. We had some of that, too, at that time. But he detonated a charge that blasted tyranny from these shores. Our minds go back in the Old Testament, in the second place, to Joshua, that great leader of Israel. They had reached the Promised Land, through many dangers, toils, and snares, they had already come. But he faced a vacillating, irresolute, hesitating multitude, easily swayed this way and that, one day singing the praises of God and the next day dancing around a golden calf. It was an hour of decision, and he gave a resume, a sort of a rundown, of how God had led them to this good hour. And after all that, uh, he came to the climax, uh, they don't know what you're going to do, but as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. 
If there ever was a weak-kneed generation swayed by the world, the flesh, and the devil, we're in it. And if there ever was a time when fathers like Joshua ought to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, it's now. Whatever the neighbors on the block where you live may think and whatever society may do and whatever the trend is and whatever the style is and the fashion and whatever the in crowd is up to, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It never was as difficult as it is now when the law of God has been disregarded and standards of decency and morality have been thrown into the wastebasket and our homes have cracked up until all the way from Maine to California it ought to be declared a disaster area. Folks can't get along with each other. Wonderful thing to be able to get along. I was at the funeral of my father-in-law last week. who was 98. And my pastor and his minister said they had just, he and his dear wife, now 95, had celebrated their 75th wedding anniversary. And he said, isn't it wonderful to be in love with somebody for 75 years? You don't hear much of that these days, I'm afraid, the way things are going. I heard of an old couple in a rest home some time ago, and he wanted to cheer her up a little. And she couldn't hear well. And he said, I'm proud of you. She said, hey. And he said, I'm proud of you. She said, I didn't get it. He said, I said, I'm proud of you. Oh, she said, I'm tired of you, too. <laughs> I'm afraid we've gotten around to too much of that. I'm dumbfounded that the way parents who used to stand with Joshua have surrendered to the age and invented all kinds of excuses to rationalize their defeat and the behavior of their children. But I also know some parents and some families, thank God, who are still saying, as for me, in my house will serve the Lord. And they're making a go of it in spite of the world, the flesh, and the devil. If it can be done and if it ought to be done, why then let's do it. Jacob did it at Shechem. He said, let's go back to Bethel. They didn't take a vote on it to see whether it was acceptable to the family. He wasn't afraid it might frustrate Junior. They just went. And the terror of the Lord went with them, and the best way to build a ring of fire around your family as you make your way through this world is to start out in front and say, we're going to Bethel. Both Jacob and Joshua made such declaration at Shechem. We're all there today, and the way back to Bethel is the way they took, but as for me. Paul wrote to a young preacher, and three times he spoke of perils the peril of things, the peril of the times, and perils concerning the truth. And each time he turned from the peril to the preacher with these words, but as for you, as some of the new translations give it. King James says, but thou. I kind of like, but as for you. Now it's going to be like this, but as for you. First place, it's a time when people are going to live for things. The love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, it's dollar day today all the time, everywhere. That's the trademark of America. William Jennings Bryan said the trouble with people who live for money is they spend the first half of their life trying to get everything they can from everybody else 
and the last half trying to keep everybody else from getting what they've got away from them, and they don't find any pleasure they to have. John, somebody asked John D. Rockefeller one time, how much money will it take to satisfy a man? He said, just a little more. And that is just about accurate. Men live for money, and what it'll buy? Oh, you say it's the love of money. I know that's what it says. But if there weren't any money, there wouldn't be any love of money. But as for me, I will not make things the God of my life, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Just because a man has a lot of money doesn't mean he's worth it. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That's life's poorest investment. A Christian in a Cadillac is no more precious in the sight of God than a saint in a jeep. God wants no man to be any richer than his soul. And in these days when we spend our health looking for wealth and then turn around and spend our wealth looking for health, we need to remember what the good book says, I wish that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prosper. As for me, I'm going to be content, the Christian says, or ought to say, something to eat and something to wear. That's what Paul advised us to do. And I accept the New Testament formula, godliness plus contentment equals prosperity. That's the New Testament formula. Then uh, Paul dealt with the perils of the times. In 2 Timothy 3, you have that catalog of the characteristics of the last days, and one would have to be blind in both eyes and bereft of his brains not to see this on the front page of every newspaper every morning. Uh, Paul paints no rosy picture of the future. So far as this poor age is concerned, he does not foresee a converted world, neither did our Lord. He talked about abounding lawlessness and abating love. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth, as it was in the days of Noah? Well, how was it? Well, that Canaanitic uh, civilization in Genesis 4 had done right well. They had cities and arts and manufacturing and uh, advancement and culture of a sort. Uh, but there was an unholy mixture in the sixth chapter, the sons of God and the daughters of men, mixing what God never mixed and separating what God never separated. We've been doing it ever since. And there was wickedness, the carcass and the vultures, and there was ignorance. They knew not. Uh, so much ignorance today, and the trouble is so much of it's educated ignorance. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be. It's an old record. It's been played again and again. And those giants of that day were soon clinging to the wreckage of the flood. And today when men say peace and safety, that sounds like good news, but good news is bad news to a Christian because sudden destruction comes. He knows what's coming next. But on the other hand, bad news is good news to a Christian. Men's hearts failing them for fear. Wars and rumors of wars. Don't drop your head. Don't shake it. Lift it up because your redemption draws nigh. Paul Harvey said that uh, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is going to come back and take over when we have made a hopeless mess of self-government, well, then he ought to be back any time. We have succeeded. In the midst of all this, Noah found grace. God saved the remnant. He's not saving civilization. Civilization is a goner. He never started out to save civilization. I used to say civilization is going to the dogs, but I quit out of respect for dogs. There are plenty of people doing things beneath the dignity of any dog today. 
Noah prepared an ark, preached righteousness, got his family in the ark, and was on the right side of the door when God shut it. Now, that's the picture. And Paul says that we are going to have all these things, but as for you, I want you to know something. I want you to understand the times, like the children of Issachar in the Old Testament who had an understanding of the times that produced a knowledge of what to do. Josh Billings said he'd rather know a few things for certain than be sure of a lot of things that ain't so. We have a world today that's chasing a thousand and one things that aren't true. Now, Paul goes on to say here, in a time like this, these perilous times, you know what time, what a time it is. It's not a prosperous time. It's not a propitious time. It's a perilous time. And then in verses 10 and 11, you know me. You've had the example of my life, and you and I have had the example of godly forefathers, not only Paul, but all the men of God who have passed on the torch and kept the charge. Verse 14, you know how you were brought up, godly parentage, Christian home, family altar, before the day of women's lib and the total woman. And then in verse 15, you know the scriptures. Well, I wonder whether we do or not. A great many come out of preacher schools with loads of learned lumber in their head and unable to construct very much out of it. Some of them have been taught to doubt it as though it were the height of ignorance to be sure of anything. We say the New Testament is a sufficient rule of faith and practice, but do we mean all of the New Testament? You've heard of the bed of Procrustes. If a fellow was too short, they stretched him till he would fit it. If he was too long, they chopped him off until he would fit it. And uh, we stretch the scriptures or lop them off to fit the Procrustean beds of our own private interpretation and judge the book instead of remembering that the book will judge us. It's either absolute or it's obsolete. Then Paul said to Timothy, there are perils about the truth, 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. Uh, he said we must take a stand, and never was that more needed than now. When our Lord expounded the scriptures, they had heartburn. Paul says a time will come when they will seek preachers who can entertain them. The tragedy of much of the church today is it's come all the way from heartburn to ear itch. And that's the peril of these hours. I like dogmatic preaching. Uh, when I'm sick and call the doctor, I want a dogmatic doctor. I don't want him to say it could be this and it could be that. And we'll try these pills and if they don't kill you, we'll try something else. When I get on the plane tomorrow to go back to North Carolina, I want a dogmatic pilot. I don't want one who says, well, we've been doing it a certain way, but today I'm going to try something new. I hope it won't be tomorrow. Now, against this background of the perils concerning things and the times and the truth, a preacher, and what I say this morning is not just for preachers, because there's no double standard in the book. If it's good enough for preachers, it's good enough for everybody else. A preacher, however, stands out in vivid contrast in a special sense, since he's God's man, and whatever this world or even most church members do about things and about the times and about the truth, about the truth, God is saying, but as for you, you must be different, and every Christian must be different. The big question today is how different should a preacher and how different should a Christian be? Everybody wants to be different. 
Uh, we brag about the fact that we're different today. There never has been a time when people were more alike than they are right now. Uh, we've got a nation of rebels. Do your own thing any way you like. There's no king in Israel. And every man does not what's right, but what he wants to do. And we've wound up more alike than ever. Young people are more alike than ever, yet they glory in being different. I live across the street from a university campus. I get out there and watch that generation in blue jeans. And I remember that when I was a country boy, hoeing corn, North Carolina, I wore blue jeans, a better grade, I think, than this. And in those days, you could tell the boys from the girls uh, I wondered what would happen if some charming sweetheart of the 20s would run into the present-day hippie looking like Rip Van Winkle after he had awakened from that long nap that he took. I wondered what the reaction might be. Preachers go to two extremes. We have that somber person in dark attire like the movies portray. I haven't seen many of them, certainly not lately. Uh, the minister today has gotten away from that. I remember years ago I was in a conference up in New York State, and John Hess McComb, Presbyterian preacher in the city, uh, was at breakfast, and I came down. I had on a outfit that was a little bit uh, sharp for me, and he looked at me and said, Well, the prophet is wearing snappy sackcloth. <clears throat> But we are mortally afraid to be taken for a preacher today, I think. The church and the world are working overtime destroying the old image of the minister, erasing all distinctions between clergy and laity, making the preacher just one of the boys, as run-of-the-mill as any John Doe in a carpool on Monday morning going back to work. The devil's out to smudge all the lines of distinctiveness. Listen to one of the greatest of preachers, Jowett. And this is good for everybody, not just preachers, but he said it to preachers. We are tempted to leave our noontide lights in our study, to move among men with a dark lantern which we can manipulate to suit our company. We pay the tribute of smiles to the low business standard. We pay the tribute of laughter to the fashionable jest, the tribute of easy tolerance to ambiguous pleasures. We soften everything to a comfortable acquiescence. We seek to be all things to all men. We run with the hare and hunt with the hounds. Nothing distinctive about our character. We're wearing gray when we mix with the businessmen of the congregation, and we talk gray in conversation with them. Uh, they say the preacher today must be one of the boys, just one of us. No, no. God never intended for the preacher to be just one of us. He meant for the preacher to be ahead of us, setting an example. Follow me as I follow Christ. If he's the life of the party all week, he will not reprove, rebuke, and exhort effectively on Sunday. Somebody said, well, Jesus ate with the publicans and sinners. Yes, he did, and there's not a verse in the book, I think, that's been overworked more than that one. When he came to announce the kingdom, he came first to the house of Israel. But as he drew near the cross, he ate only with his own and appeared only to his own, and the Acts of the Apostles presents a different picture. But the image of a preacher is not a pose that a preacher strikes trying to act up to a dramatized version of himself. If he is what he ought to be, the image will take care of itself, and it'll be said of him as the Shunammite said of Elisha, I perceive that this is a holy man of God which passeth by us continually. There's nothing more repulsive to Jesus than religious play-acting, and the Pharisees were experts 
and they drew the severest condemnation from him. Theodore Roosevelt says that as a young man he was shaken up considerably by some lines out of one of Browning's poems about a young duke who was the poor descendant of a line that had been very noble and wealthy, and yet he tried to act what he really didn't have. And the line went like this. All that the old dukes had been without knowing it, this duke would fain know he was without being it. And that stirred the conscience of that young Theodore Roosevelt. There's no sadder sight at the judgment day than a phony preacher. And I tell you, I don't see how any man can read Matthew 7, 22, 23 without uh, some serious reflection and maybe checking himself again. He said there'd be preachers show up there who say, Well, Lord, haven't we prophesied and cast out demons and done wonderful works only to hear him say, Depart from me, now mind you, ye that work iniquity. Can you be a good enough preacher to cast out demons and prophesy and do wonderful works and yet be a worker of iniquity yet? That's what he said. And this same Paul said to Timothy, you must watch your doctrine. We've come to a time when some folks think it doesn't matter much what you believe as long as everybody's in good humor. The letter to the Philippians, there Paul rejoiced in those who gave a sound message, although their motive was unsound. To the Galatians, though he contended for a sound message, he deplored those who uh, he was calling on the Philippians for a sound message. He was calling on Galatians for a sound message. But he'd rather have a sound message even with an unsound motive than an unsound message, whatever the motive. As Gresham Machen pointed out a long time ago in that book, Christianity or Liberalism, that shook me up and jarred me loose at a time in my life when I sadly needed such a statement. Then Paul said to Timothy, you must also look after your dynamics, stir up the gift of God. I think that this extremism that's going around today in some quarters about the work of the Holy Spirit is uh, doing a very dangerous thing in that it is getting some Christians who are so afraid that they'll be mistaken about the Holy Spirit that they're not interested at all in any work of the Holy Spirit. They're so scared they'll get out on a limb they never get up the tree. Certainly we ought all to be filled with the Spirit of God. Timothy was timid. He had a spirit of fear. And to the Corinthians, Paul said, I want him to be among you without fear. John the Baptist was a burning and a shining light. Some have heat and no light. Some have light and no heat. I don't know which is worse, hot-headed ignorance or cold-hearted intelligence. But uh, I think I'd rather try to cool off a fanatic than warm up a corpse. He said to Timothy, furthermore, Look out for discipline into your hardness. There's no discipline anymore in the home, none in the school, and very little in church. The preacher easily falls a victim to this distemper, but when you have all three, you need doctrine that you may believe, and you need dynamic that you may burn, and you need discipline that you may behave. And that's the standard. And the flags are way ahead of the regiment these days. We've paid a high price. And letting the world, the flesh, and the devil reduce us to mediocrity, 
And one thinks of those words of Robert Murray McShane, men return again and again to the few who have mastered the spiritual secret, whose life has been hid with Christ in God. These are of the old-time religion hung to the nails of the crows. It's very unpopular to be a different Christian or a different preacher today. Paul was that kind, but Demas couldn't make it, and it may be that one trouble with Demas is found in his name, which means popular. He certainly loved this present world. Uh, some summers ago, I went to a preacher's camp. I've been there twice now already in East Tennessee among those wonderful mountains, Camp Carson, put on by the Secretary of Evangelism of Tennessee. It's a great spot. It's rugged. It's extremely rugged. There's a high mountain right beside the camp, and I made a point of endeavoring to climb it every morning before breakfast. And the first time I tried it, I got up a ways, and then my legs were wobbling, and my heart was thumping, and something inside said to me, who do you think you are, a teenager? You've forgotten you were born in 1901, haven't you? But I made it. And uh, before I reached the top, there was a break in the woods, and I thought, well, maybe I'll get a good enough view if I go over there and look. And it was good, but something said it'll be better at the top. And I made it. And I was paid for the effort because the difference was worth the distance. And I would say to every preacher today and every servant of the Lord, keep climbing. Some of your contemporaries will say, get off your high horse and join the club. Tell them I can't do it, boys. Faith has caught the joyful sound, the song of saints on higher ground. I want to scale the utmost height and catch a gleam of glory bright. Anything else is out of the question. Elisha felt that way on his way to see Elijah go to heaven in a whirlwind, and the students at Bethel Theological Seminary and Jericho Theological Seminary were all along the road, and they said, don't you know that your master's going up today? Yes, he said, keep quiet. He didn't want to be bothered. So once in a while, there's an Elisha today who has made up his mind to see the horses and the chariots and come back with a prophet's mantle. The high soul walks the high road and the low soul walks the low, but in between on the misty flats, the rest of us just drift to and fro. If you're going to be a different Christian, if you're going to be a different preacher, it may mean getting up earlier. William Law used to say, who am I to get up early in the morning? Well, who am I to lie in bed when the farmers are already about their work and I'm so far behind with my sanctification? I like that. We might argue about sanctification, but I think we'll all agree this morning on one thing. We're all behind with it. It may mean turning off the late TV show. You won't miss anything anyhow. Somebody said they're so sorry these days the kids have even gone back to their homework. It may mean skipping some little church meetings of the sons and daughters of I Will Arise. These little meetings that don't have anything to do with redemption anyhow. The road's long. 
The climb's steep, but if you make it, friend, the difference is worth the distance. You may end up with not much to show for it, not much of fame, not much of fortune, but I think of the Indian chief who called in some of his men and said, I want you to climb that mountain. You may not make it, but if you reach the top from the summit, you will be able to see the shining sea beyond. And he said, wherever you stop, if you can't make it, pick up something and bring it back to show me that you got that far. Pull a sprig off of some tree that grows that high. And the first man came back in the middle of the afternoon and he only had a twig of pine and he said, that's as far as I could make it. Later on, another came back with a sprig of fir. F-I-R. He said, I almost made it. Late in the evening, the last one came in, and he didn't have anything. The chief said, I ask you to bring something back that we could see. And that Indian said, where I stood, there was nothing to bring back in my hands, but... I saw the sea. 